trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to 2021. All right, we got a fresh year in front of us. I know it feels a little bit ominous. I can't be the only one who feels like we, uh, we're approaching some kind of a, an historical crossroads. At least it has that sense. But I, I choose to feel more optimistic than pessimistic. And I, I don't have any explanation other than, um, look, I, I believe we are in the midst of, uh, of a historical cycle. I'm uh, kind of a fan of the whole idea behind uh, fourth turning historical cycles. And uh, brother or sister, as the case may be, <laughs> we, are, uh, we are in the midst of the crisis. And that crisis is going to come to a climax sometime here within the next, I don't know, five, maybe 10 years. It may be even sooner. Certainly the stage is being set for some really exciting times. And while that means that uh, there is likely to be some pretty big discomfort, if not outright um, suffering as a part of that financially, uh, geopolitically, you know, war and that kind of stuff, um, you know, civic decay and that sort of thing. There's also great potential for people like you and me to uh, to find tremendous purpose in what we're doing. I wish I could be less cryptic about that, because I even as I say it, I'm like, OK, that sounds like. Uh, but what's the course of action? Well, that's that's the kicker. I can't tell you what your specific course of action should be. I wouldn't want you to have to tell me, Brian, this is what you need to do. The only caution I'm going to offer is don't get so caught up in the politicking that you forget your deepest principles. Because as, as unlikely as this may seem, I, I'm going to make a promise and, and I want you to hold me to this. Someday you and I are going to meet. Maybe it'll be for the first time. Somewhere far away from here, maybe in the halls of eternity, you and I are going to meet. And I want you to remember that I reminded you there was a time where we stood at a crossroads and we were tempted to view everything through the prism of what matters politically as opposed to what really matters in the long run. So I'm just going to say this simply. The political stuff though scary, unpredictable, and sometimes maddeningly frustrating, is extremely temporary. It's fickle. It, it, it comes and goes like a fad. Watch how quickly it goes up, and then keep in mind things that quickly go up tend to come down rather quickly as well. But the stuff that actually matters, the things that you will look back on at the end of your life as to what kind of a person you were, go far beyond politics. So what I'm asking you to consider is do not sacrifice the good in your character and the person that you could be in the process of becoming just to achieve what you think is some short-term political victory. Now, to people who are politically possessed, that's going to sound like, hey, he's telling me to give up, sit on my hands <laughs> and cry. <laughs> but that's not what I'm saying. I'm asking you to do something even harder. And that is to not mindlessly react 
to whatever political stimuli is being projected at you at the moment. And it is hard. We're going to delve into that a little bit today. I want to share with you an essay from Joaquin Book. I saw this and shared this over the weekend. And this could apply to politics. It can apply to the lockdowns. It can apply to virtually any area of our lives. But it's that desire to dominate. Longtime listeners to my program will have heard me use the term uh, libido dominandi. The desire to dominate or the will to power, which uh, St. Augustine wrote about many, many centuries ago. And Joaquin Book, in his essay, Lockdowners and the Desire to Dominate, refers to Judge Andrew Napolitano, who apparently in years of lecturing at Mises University, gives the same terrifying ending to his introductory speech. But Joaquin Book says, not until the horrors of this year did it dawn on me that perhaps his point has its basis in reality. Because the judge often mentions, almost like a joke, libido dominandi, the desire to dominate. He says, we find similar notions in Friedrich Hayek's Why the Worst Get on Top chapter of the book The Road to Serfdom, and most certainly in the eerily relevant writings of Robert Higgs. But he says, the memorable ending in Napolitano's lecture is, I expect that I will die faithful to my first principles, in my bed, surrounded by people that love me. Some of you may die faithful to first principles in a government prison, and some of you may die faithful to first principles in a government town square to the sound of a government trumpet blaring. Now, Joaquin Book says, the few times I've been fortunate enough to hear him speak those words live, they always struck me as a little exaggerated. Even though the room fell dead quiet, I felt sick to my stomach and had goosebumps all over my skin. It couldn't possibly get that bad, could it? But he says, the madness of 2020 has had me reconsider. And this is where he gets into something that I hope you and I can take to heart. And that is the control of others' lives, because that is what lies at the root of so much of our our conflict that we see today. He says, wanting to rule over others is to some extent innate. Perhaps it follows from our our misplaced sense of superiority. In other words, the Lake Wobegon effect, or from a hubristic pretense of knowledge, or perhaps from an inability to see the full range of values that others provide, or know better how things should be done. If only I were in charge, the world would be better. But Joaquin Book says what's clear is that in Anno 2020, the ever-present lust for for domination experienced a perfect storm. A storm that let them unleash their controls to lecture us and commandeer us hither and thither to centrally plan a health campaign and to direct anyone and everyone as to what they were allowed to do. What's so terrifying about this isn't just that the desire to rule others exists, it always did, but that the forces that usually keep it at bay somehow just gave up. In the early days of the pandemic, he says, those of us who make our living crafting words were fighting over libertarianism. There are no libertarians in a pandemic, they said. Perhaps we politely responded, like everyone else, a bit afraid of what we then didn't know. But surely there are no statists coming out of one either. Beneficial regulations that disrupted production and distribution of stuff suddenly high in demand were lifted. Centralized government control botched things left and right. With obvious failure of this magnitude, we couldn't possibly want government commanding us around and regulating our affairs. Well, he says, in hindsight, that dispute seems quaint, and we forgot the core of it. 
Now, people from Paul Krugman to Tyler Cowen seem to think that libertarians rule the world and that everything that has gone wrong is libertarians' fault. In the race to centrally plan everything from production decisions to who gets to leave their house wearing what, every other concern, except naturally Black Lives Matter, was thrown overboard. Joaquin Book says libertarianism isn't an ideology about what's the better outcome, however defined. It's not about how we fix a medical problem or how best to mitigate disasters like pandemics. It's not even about how to distribute the breathtaking surplus that our, productive, that our highly productive economies create. It's about who gets to make decisions about what. Did you catch that? That is the crux of the matter right there. Who gets to make decisions about what? It's not about how we best minimize pandemic threats, not about how we best optimize some imagined private or social welfare function, not about how we best ensure long and healthy lives. Whoever owns something decides. If you, the owner and manager of your body, want to put harmful drugs in it, he says, be my guest. That's none of my business. If you wish to carry crystals that protect against evil or against pink elephants lurking in the shadows. Knock yourself out. If you wish to dress up in phony gear that staves off invisible microbes, have fun. But you do not have the right to mandate that others follow suit. You do not, like Cowan recently did, have the high ground to say, actually, freedom just doesn't seem worth it. He, as David Henderson chastised him for it, seems to be substituting his own values for those of others. The cardinal sin for anyone who pays lip service to liberty. And he wasn't the only one. Succumbing to the temptation of commandeering others about, libertarians, in quotation marks, on both sides of the Atlantic started invoking externalities and public goods to justify one patently unjust and invasive policy after another. Sam Bowman, a self-described neoliberal and formerly of the Adam Smith Institute, is like Cowan, just the most vocal of the casualties. But public health is not a public good. As Michael Akkad recently described in response to the Great Barrington Declaration, nor is it of anyone else's concern. He said an individual's life and health are particular goods, not common goods. It's an obvious metaphysical truth that my health and my life can only be mine and are not shared in common with anyone, and certainly not with the political community at large. At its heart, public health is an oxymoron since the public, as an abstraction, has no health to speak of. Only individuals are healthy or not. I love where this is going. We're going to pick it up just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Alta Bank, as well as Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. I would encourage you to go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You will find contact links to my sponsors, and I would, I would encourage you to get acquainted with them. Tell them thank you for making this program possible. And if, if you have need for their business, their service, then please, by all means, do business with them. So I'm sharing this article from Joaquin Book, Lockdowners and the Desire to Dominate. And I think this may be one of the best articles that I have read about uh, why it is not only um, 
why it's not only the right thing to do, but it's a necessary thing to do to oppose those who are so vehemently pushing for these lockdowns. And I know you get called names. You're a science denier. You're selfish. You're irresponsible. they, They really love to throw the names out there. But what it really comes down to is a, it's a question of ownership. Who owns your health? Who owns your body? Who is the manager of your body? And if the answer is anything other than yourself, my friend, you have a problem. When did that transfer of ownership take place? At what point did they assume responsibility? And where are the limits? Is there anything that they can tell you to do or demand of you where you are not obligated if you're not the owner of yourself? These are the kind of things you have to think through. And this is why I wholeheartedly stand with those who have stood against the lockdowns and why I cannot accept the demands that are being made of us. I don't care how fearful people are. The time to stand against this desire to dominate is now because it will only get worse if that desire to dominate is indulged. As Joaquin Book explains, lockdowns as pandemic fighting policy are are this perfect domineering strategy. If the infection rates go down, success. You win and you can invoke the same policy of control next time there's some alleged disaster looming. If the infection rates remain the same or go up, something we've seen a lot lately, you clamp down harder. Success again. What would the world have to look like for you to concede? What would have to happen for you to say, actually, stripping away our population's freedoms and dignities don't seem to help us in reducing the infections? There is no circumstance under which lockdowners accept that their pandemic policy does not work or, more importantly, runs against liberty or basic human dignity. Now, he says, interestingly enough, Paul Krugman almost got it right. Lambasting libertarians for everything that's wrong in pandemic America. Yes, that's exactly as nutty as it sounds. He writes, many things should be matters of individual choice. The government has no business dictating your cultural tastes, your faith, or what you decide to do with other consenting adults. Now, Joaquin Book says, we used to think that liberals wanted to liberate the people from government constraints, a fundamental hands-off approach. American liberals long since forgot this insight. It's no longer about leaving people alone. It's about correcting their thought crimes before they manifest themselves in the world. Still, he says, the liberals of today pay lip service to this notion before they pivot 180 degrees and start listing activities that it is now the government's business to decide. What you wear in public, where you go, what you think, what you trade, with whom and where, ensuring that you don't unknowingly spread germs around. He concludes that the pandemic brought out the worst in people and clearly revealed what was always simmering under the surface, an innate desire to dominate others, to put them in their place, to shove nonsensical ideas down their throats, to dress them up in paltry gear, to ridicule and attack those who deviate from the one true government faith. The pandemic showed who truly supported and respected the values that others may hold and who would rather give in to the temptation of power who would override the faulty actions among our inferior plebs freedom lies in the human heart said judge napolitano but it must do more than just lie there joaquin book says remember that when you are stripped of liberties in the name of everyone else's well-being 
Now, I don't know why, but this essay hit me as hard as anything that I have read within recent memory. I think he's dead on right. And I think by framing it in the context of this is not a matter of just uh, my liberty. It's, it's not a matter of just government says it, so I have to do the opposite. It really comes down to who gets to make the decisions. And there are certain decisions that cannot be made through central planning. The one-size-fits-all approach does not work and is immoral. So for those of you who have been, you know, some are very firmly committed. Some of you are diehards who absolutely, you're not going to put the mask on. You are not going to succumb to the fear. You're not going to play along. And I applaud you. But there are a lot of people kind of in that gray area where, look, I got to go along to this point just to get along because I want to avoid conflict. And I don't know if it's the right thing to do. I mean, they're telling me I'm selfish. They tell me I put my family at risk or I put others at risk when I go out and I don't look like everybody else with my mask. This should help you put to rest those questions about whether or not you are doing the right thing. Again, I'm not telling you what to do. But I'm hopefully providing you with some food for thought and some of the principles that are at stake so that you can make that decision from a better informed position. If someone else is asserting ownership over you, especially if it's some nebulous collective ownership of you and your body and your health and your autonomy, you have every right to tell them no. And they may bring various, you know, forms of, you know, ostracizing and, and social pressure against you. Maybe even they threaten violence. Holy cow, who was, the, who was the guy who posted on Twitter a couple of days ago about how he gets so angry when he sees someone unmasked? He's like, I literally want to go and beat an unmasked per person to death. Yeah, he posted that on social media. For some reason, Twitter didn't seem to have any problem with it. But hey, you know, he's just trying to express himself. Tell me that that's not an example of someone who's suffering from severe lust to control others. So much so that he sits there and openly fantasizes about what it would be like to beat somebody to death because they don't toe the line that he thinks they should toe. I mean, there's a part of me that actually wishes the guy would, would uh, go out there and act on it. Preferably against, uh, I don't know, a member of Hell's Angels or something. Someone who would take absolutely none of his crap and essentially make him pay a very high price for his aggression. But that wouldn't be a very nice thing to do. So now here I am fantasizing that he'll get his. We're all going to get ours <laughs> in the end. But uh, think about it. Anytime you feel like there's a need, I need to assert this. I need to make that person do what I want them to do. Are you engaging in that need to dominate other people? It's not a healthy way to live, and it's not a happy way to live either. Life is going to be full of challenges. We're all going to have times where we get to eat our share of mud. That's just part of life. It's hard, or it can be. But there are a few things that make it more unhappy and lead to greater disappointment and greater uh, anger than the people who indulge that little dictator in their skull that tells them you have a right and you have a need to control everybody around you. This is one of the reasons why I, I do my level best to try to persuade people away from being enemy-driven, 
away from defining themselves by who or what they're against. I'm not saying that they're bad, they're stupid, or they're evil for, for thinking that way. I'm just saying there are more successful ways. And I only know this because I've walked that path myself. And when I watched the news or when I listened to talk radio so I could get my marching orders about who or what I should be angry with and what I should be against, and I defined myself by how firmly I am against this or that or them, I was not a very happy person. I've been a lot happier since I've focused on uh, let's, let's see what I can do to make a positive change in the world without trying to be against everything. I'd rather be known for what I stand for than what I'm against. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. So one of the things that goes through my mind is, as I try to think, how can I best persuade people to choose freedom over security? That's a pretty tall order because even, even I like security. I like the, you know, I like knowing where my next meal is going to come from, how the bills are going to be paid. You know, I want to know it all. I want to know specifically how do I get from point A to point B. And, uh, you know, I don't like to leave things to chance. However, <laughs> there are some places where I have to draw the line. And where once I operated under the understanding that, you know, government is just here to help us and to, to help us do the things we can't do ourselves I have been disabused of that notion. I don't believe it anymore. I've seen too many instances where government is the real villain. By the way, in the show notes today, I have an article by Alexander William Salter. I've interviewed him a few times on the program Moving Forward with Young Voices, which is heard on the Fed by Ravens Media Network. Alex is a remarkable commentator. He's a contributor to Young Voices. He's a professor of economics in Texas. And he has this great article about how the real villain of 2020 was big government. And, and I like that he's not just, you know, offering, well, I think they were bad because they did this or they did that. He backs it up with the numbers. He has links that will take you to every point he is making of why big government still ended up being the villain, even though ostensibly it was there to save us, you know, because we needed its help. I would encourage you to go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, these are the show notes for January 4th, 2021, and check it out. You'll find some great food for thought there. Speaking of food for thought, I saw this graphic a few weeks ago. I actually shared this on my Facebook page. Now I see an article has been written following up. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Lucio Severio Eastman and Misha Gartz. 15 signs you're in an abusive relationship with the government. Now, I want to walk through the 15 signs just because this is any relationship. And if you have ever, ever known someone who has unfortunately had to suffer through domestic violence or a really toxic relationship, a lot of these are going to sound familiar. The 15 signs of an abusive relationship include if they stop you from seeing friends and family, won't let you go out without permission, Tell you what to wear, monitor your phone or emails, control the finances or they won't let you work, control what you read, watch, and say, 
monitor everything you do, punish you for breaking the rules, but the rules keep changing. They tell you it's for your own good and that they know better. They don't allow you to question it. They tell you you're crazy and no one agrees with you. They call you names or shame you for being stupid or selfish. They gaslight you, challenge your memory of events, make you doubt yourself. They dismiss your opinions. And last but not least, the abuser plays the victim. If all else goes wrong, it's all your fault. Now, as I was listing those off, you probably were like, "Ooh, wait, hey, man, that uh, that could apply in, in either, you know, a domestic situation or an abusive government relationship. So the authors here went through these warning signs of an abusive relationship, along with current examples of how governments are offenders. Take, for instance, stop you from seeing friends and family. We're all in this together, apart. Stay home, stay safe. That's what we're told. And at first it was temporary. Staying apart would slow the spread, flatten the curve, preserve hospital capacity and the energy of our exhausted healthcare workers. And we followed along, believing that staying apart would keep us together. Well, to date, many bars, restaurants and cafes are still closed or have capacity limits. Some have closed permanently. Border closures and travel restrictions prevent people from congregating with family for holidays or even taking vacations. Even neighborly gatherings are subject to curfews or bans. And then there's the tragedy of loved ones dying alone in hospitals or long-term care facilities due to restrictions. How about this one? Won't let you go out without permission. The article says the government has provided lists of what they consider essential for maintaining critical infrastructure operations. Are you an essential worker? While it may seem that your movements are not restricted in most places within the U.S., there are many countries where going out means possible abuse by police and authorities for arbitrary arbitrary violations or fines for breaking lockdown orders. In France, citizens need papers to validate their reason for being out. In one of the toughest lockdowns seen in Australia this past year, 3,000 tenants were forcibly kept from leaving their apartments, apartments rather, separating parents and from children, separating partners, and these continued breaches of public trust will undoubtedly spread as reports of human rights abuses pour in. Then there's the matter of telling you what to wear. In March, Dr. Fauci told 60 Minutes people should not be wearing masks. Quote, the masks, are, the masks are important for someone who is infected to prevent them from infecting someone else. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. And he acknowledges they're mostly symbolic, noting when you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better. It might even block a droplet. But it's not providing the perfect protection that people think it is. End quote. Now, most states have mandated masks, which are now a cultural icon, signaling individuals' social responsibility and good citizenship. And if you want to be extra safe or extra socially conscious, follow Fauci's lead and wear two. And if you want to be extra, extra, extra safe, goggles may also be a good idea. Now, the list goes on here, monitoring your phone or emails. This one jumped out at me, controlling the finances or won't let you work. If your business is deemed not essential, the local, county, and state governments have the power to close your business. Additionally, some of the hardest-hit industries right now are the arts. Live music, museums, theaters, many more art venues are effectively shut down, putting many performers and artists out of work. 
closing so-called non-essential businesses has merely pushed business to online retailers like Amazon or click-and-collect chain stores. This one hit me too. Control what you read, watch, and say. From the beginning of the crisis, online publishing platforms have taken to changing their terms and conditions regularly in order to justify censorship and takedowns of articles, studies, and videos that don't follow the approved narrative. Additionally, there's plenty of evidence that propaganda campaigns on social media spill over into traditional media outlets, influencing opinion and shifting narratives towards specific goals on a global scale. A 28-year-old pregnant woman was arrested in front of her two children merely for posting on Facebook about an anti-lockdown protest in Ballarat, Australia, drawing criticism from the president of the Australian Human Rights Council. The woman's devices were consequently confiscated and bail was granted on the condition that she does not access social media until the allotted time. Human Rights Watch notes, arresting people preemptively for the act of organizing peaceful protests or for social media posts is something that happens all too often under authoritarian regimes, and it should not be happening in a democracy. And then there's this one. Punish you for breaking the rules, but the rules keep changing. They'll get up in front of the cameras and espouse the virtues of following the rules and then turn around and break them without a second thought. If you break their rules, they will shut you down and then go to Hawaii for dinner. Can't keep up with the rules? Huh, they'll shift regularly and blame will be placed on you for not following the previous orders. Even those who think ahead and proactively try to improve public safety are caught up. In March, police threatened to fine a London shopkeeper 80 pounds for criminal damage after she, quote, vandalized the sidewalk with chalk markings intended to help customers observe six-foot distancing. Several restaurant owners in, in New York City are suing Cuomo and de Blasio. However, they keep running into obstacles as the rules change frequently. Tina Opadisano, owner of Il Baco Ristorante in Queens, is spearheading the lawsuit. She says, we initially filed the lawsuit to open up indoor dining, which we were aiming for the same percentage as everyone else. So we wanted 50%. He gave us 25. So now we have to go amend the lawsuit to fight for 50. Then we went back to zero. So now we have to try to fight for 25. It's just like an ongoing thing. So it's kind of interesting that I think they, you know, they clearly know how to manipulate the system so you get nowhere. Clearly, this is her first time learning how to think like a bureaucrat. Bureaucrats do it naturally. How about this? They tell you for it's for your own. They tell you it's for your own good and that they know better. Back in May, AIER's editorial director, Jeffrey Tucker, documented how dentists and doctors were prevented from seeking new patients. We were told to protect our health. You cannot receive medical care unless it's an emergency. You cannot see a dentist. You cannot see a doctor. You cannot have elective surgery, continue chemotherapy, or receive a transplant either. And they'll tell you it's for your own protection and to follow the experts to ensure the safety of the whole. Consensus is the clarion call of these pundits. That's a form of pathological altruism defined as any behavior or personal tendency in which the stated aim or the implied motivation is to promote the welfare of another. But instead of overall beneficial outcomes, the altruism is instead has irrational and substantial negative consequences. You got to check out Alex Salter's article. It's in the show notes at the We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Moving into the final segment for this hour. Once again, I just I have to tip my hat to Paul Rosenberg for providing uh, some of the most nourishing food for thought that I have been able to find. I, I can't emphasize how much this guy's writing has helped to influence my own way of seeing the world. And if that sounds like, oh, so you've set him up as a guru and now you hang on every word. Not exactly, because that's that's certainly not in the message that, that Paul himself would would teach. But he definitely has a way of looking at things that just makes a lot of sense. And particularly, he is up to essay number 11, examining examining, (laughs) examining common fallacies that uh, you and I are likely to encounter as we go about trying to speak and help share the truth. It's not so much about being able to out-debate everybody or be able to argue them into a corner. It's about being able to... Stick to the topic at hand, not get emotionally involved and and to to not have to puff up and dominate in order to try to win whatever discussion you're involved in. But there are a lot of different rhetorical tricks and fallacies that can be used to try to prevent you from getting a point across. And this one is gaslighting. Now, Paul Rosenberg says gaslighting may or may not be a proper fallacy of logic. Depends on how you look at it, but it's clearly a tool used to win arguments. And among the fallacies we've covered, he says this is among the the worst psychological tricks. In fact, he says it's a very nasty weapon to gaslight. Someone is to get them to doubt themselves, to question their own memory, perception and judgment, even to question their own sanity. So this is a very nasty, malicious trick. But he says, sadly, it often works. So we need to understand this and be prepared for it. Now, the name gaslighting, as you may know, comes from an old stage play in which a horrible husband tries to convince his wife that she is insane by doing things like dimming the gas lights in their home and then insisting that nothing has changed. The person on the evil side of this trick is trying to weaken the mind of the victim, getting him or her to feel weaker and weaker, losing all confidence in themselves and ultimately submitting to the attacker's accusations. And it really is appropriate to call gaslighting evil, since it involves intentional injury and abuse. Gaslighters, however, generally avoid direct statements such as, you're going insane. Instead, they'll imply it, they'll mention statistics about it, tell you what other people would think of you, and so on. A short phrase from George Orwell's 1984 gets to the essence of gaslighting. If one is to rule one must be able to dislocate the sense of reality. So a gaslighter is truly trying to rule over his or her victim, cruelly, no less. And their means of doing that is to dislocate the victim's sense of reality. Rather than judging themselves honestly, the victim ends up with the gaslighter's false and negative view of themselves. So here's how the trick works. Gaslighting works by planting small doubts, repeating them, and reinforcing them. And there were generally four major stages to this process. The planting and reinforcement of doubts. The target, that's you, accepting them as possibly true. The target, responding to them as if they might be true. The gaslighter, jumping upon number three and writing it to whatever goal he or she seeks. Now bear in mind, healthy humans are careful to examine their own behavior. They learn to accept mistakes and then fix them. Gaslighting rides on the back of this good habit, trying to hijack it and use your virtues against you. 
So he says, let me give you an example of, what I re- of this that I recently encountered. One man made a fairly standard sort of comment on governments taking money from people. I responded almost in passing that it was not defensible on moral grounds, but only on dogmatic grounds. Now, he says, I wasn't expecting any response, but another man jumped right on it. And it went like this. You've simplified the situation to make your position hard to attack. Start being honest with yourself. So this person, unable to address my statement directly, chose to attack me instead. Now, Paul said, look, your statement was mainly accusation and was fully unsupported, but I'll try it your way. Please describe this as you think it should be described. He said, having had some experience, I knew the man was amorally attacking, but I chose to continue and gave him a chance to set up the argument however he thought was fair. At this point, the man said, I made a clear statement. You simplified the process of taxation to make your position harder to attack. The rest is all based on that insight. Now he says, note, the man has no interest in setting up the argument his way. He doesn't want truth or reason, only to succeed in his, re- his attack, and so repeats it. Another exchange ensues with me being accused of false honesty. Paul said, you said that I unfairly simplified. I said, describe it your way. You refuse to identify a starting point for a conversation. You decree that my honesty is false and that I'm hiding behind an emotional shield. At this point, the guy responds, you are calculated in how you phrase things. The emotion is meant to insulate your narrowing of the definition. I never stated a definition and directly asked him to set one, Paul notes. Again, maybe you don't see it. Pushing me to doubt myself again using psychoanalytic methods. Paul responded, yes, I'm blind. And you see, of course, you've made a long string of naked assertions, all of them demeaning. To end it, he says, I wrote this. Okay, your time is up. Oppositional to morality, ignores direct requests, gaslighter, repeated insults with no sign of remorse, conclusion, sociopath. Go away. Now, he says that's fairly harsh, but perhaps not harsh enough. This man did his gaslighting very well, which means that he's done it a lot. Perhaps I should have ended it sooner, but it did provide a good example. A somewhat more blunt method of gaslighting popped up in 2020. If your skin is a certain color, you're racist, even if you never hurt people with differently colored skin or even hold racist thoughts. Now, again, this is an effort to make people doubt themselves, to suppose that they have some stain upon their souls, even though there's no real evidence of it. What the method above really comes down to is a belief in racism as original sin. And so it harmonizes with old religious leanings. So here's what to keep in mind. Paul Rosenberg says the first thing to keep in mind when getting slapped with with a gaslighting attempt is that positioning themselves as the reasonable or more enlightened one in the conversation is the gaslighter's first blow. Until you have some experience with this attack, that moment can slip past you. So you'll have to learn to recognize it. He says, I wish I had an easier process for you to go through, but trial, error, and learning from it is currently the best I have. Observing helps, but doesn't substitute for actually getting hit. He says, you should also bear in mind that someone trying to gaslight you is fairly likely to be a sociopath, meaning someone profoundly lacking in empathy. Now, this is a subject all its own, but this type of trick is especially common among sociopaths simply because it works so well for them. And something like 1 in 33 men and 1 in 100 women are sociopathic. So please, bear this in mind. Showing sympathy to a sociopath gives them more opportunity to hurt you. You are exposing soft spots to them. 
He says, I know that sounds horrifying, but when engaged with a sociopath, sympathy will only make things worse for you. Again, this is a separate subject, but he says you need to be aware of this much. So if you find yourself questioning yourself, stop immediately and disengage. It's all too easy to get sucked into gaslighting. Walk away uncomfortably if you must, but disengage. Unlike the other attacks we've mentioned, this one can endure for more than a moment or two. As we said earlier, healthy humans are self-analytical, and they're happy to see potential flaws. Understand that your introspection is a virtue, but that someone has weaponized it against you. Remember that when good people show you something you've done wrong, they'll go well out of their way to avoid hurting you in, their pro in the process. Once you've separated and you're feeling a bit less tortured, see if you can identify the nasty implications that got to you, bearing in mind that they may be things that were implied rather than stated directly. Get clear on the fact that you have been maliciously accused. After that's done, you can think about making a final statement and terminating the discussion, but he says, bear in mind that your statement will be more for the observers than the gaslighter. The gaslighter probably won't care other than the fact that they lost a juicy, lost a juicy victim. That's pretty powerful stuff. You can find a link to this essay in the show notes, and I'm going to take it one step further. If you haven't been to freemansperspective.com, that's Paul Rosenberg's website. Can I suggest go there, take a look at, at, a, at a number of his articles. He's got essays going back to at least 2012, maybe 2011. They may, they may go further back than that. I've been following the guy for a long, long time. There's a lot of great stuff to read. They're short. They're easy to digest. And he just has a unique way of saying things. And best of all, you can subscribe to his weekly emails. And I promise you, they will be absolutely worth your time. So this is one that I would strongly recommend. Get it on your radar screen and start building your resilience as a beacon of truth. Because the world needs more people willing to shine light into the darkness. And if you're hearing this message, congratulations. <laughs> you're one of them. Go forth and shine. This is The Brian Hyde Show.